On this spectacular episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1981 in issues 51 and 52. Lou, Max, and Rich consider Batman the movie. Bert Bruce reminisces about the powers of Matthew Starr. G-Man discusses the art of H.R. Giger in the Museum of the Surreal in Fantastique. Plus, Clash of the Titans. The TV shows of 1981. And more on this episode of... Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey baby doll. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We look forward to going to ShadowCon, January 6th through 8th, Memphis, Tennessee. A multimedia con that's focused on the SCA. Lots of live-action fighting there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 51. Cover date, October 1981. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. What's in the title? Mark Bryant from O'Fallon, Missouri. I wish to present a question that I have thought about concerning the next upcoming Star Wars epic. The title, Revenge of the Jedi, seems a bit disturbing to me. The main problem in this title is the conflict created by the use of the word revenge in association with Jedi. Yoda defines the dark side of the Force as fear and aggression. The good side is peace and is never used for attack. If we use this definition, a true Jedi cannot seek revenge. He can only use his power for defense. To say that a Jedi craves revenge is an enormous contradiction. Perhaps the title means that Luke will succumb to the dark side and join Vader. Wow, he thought about this even before the producers did. Or maybe roughly the same time, who who knows? We know that there was some controversy over the name of Revenge of the Jedi. Yes, which is why they changed it to Return of the Jedi. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Starlog presents Comics World. Citing the need for a quality news and feature magazine to accurately report on the growing comics and comics arts fields, 
Starlock publishers Norman Jacobs and Kerry O'Quinn have announced the October publication of Comics World. So this is the title that was originally planned, and we know that it will be later changed to Comic Scene. But what an incredible idea. Starlog Publications already made a magazine dedicated to horror. Now they would expand and make a publication totally directed to the comic book market. Because Starlog already had some comic book-based articles, and there was enough fervor this time period in 1981 to warrant its own magazine. It's great that there was a market for this kind of thing, and Starlog knew it, and they were they were ready for this. So, yeah, doing that was just a, a natural extension of Starlog magazine. The magazine carries a $2.50 cover price and will be found in specialty shops and newsstands around the country. Editor Bob Greenberger feels the scope and feature orientation of the magazine will make it an authoritative reference that true comic fans and even the casual reader will find hard to resist. And we've interviewed Jim Shooter before. He was on the cover of the very first issue of the comic scene talking about his involvement in Starlog. And he was saying, like, from the creator point of view, creators wanted to get out to the mass market like this. This is th- this was a good thing for expanding the scope of the comic book field. Yes, for expanding Starlog and also for for all the comic books, they were able to to um, express their their news, their whatever they had coming up could be in a magazine for the readers to know. This was like the Wizard magazine of the 1980s. Raiders lost Ark. Did George Lucas steal the idea for his hugely successful film Raiders of the Lost Ark? Stanley Raider and Robert L. Kuhn think so, and they have filed a $210 million lawsuit in Los Angeles against Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Paramount Pictures. So this author is contending that he already wrote a book in the 70s about the missing Ark of the Covenant. And there were some things in the movie that he felt were pulled directly from his book. Um, I mean, this is this is an object that has been known to man for over two thousand years. So uh, I'm I'm not really buying this. <laughs> You're yeah. telling me that no one's ever told a story about the missing ark before? Come on. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I I don't remember hearing about that lawsuit. But yeah, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant was was not a new thing in the movie, and and the movie was based on um, other myths surrounding the Ark. Exactly. Lucas goes on to say that the ideas that he had about Raiders of the Lost Ark were uh, getting written down while he and Spielberg were on vacation in 1977, and the idea for this has been around before that. So he had no idea about this author's book, and also named in a lawsuit were screenwriter Lawrence Cashton, Campbell Black, who wrote the novelization for Random House, and Cadence Industries, which published the Marvel comic book adaption of the movie. So this author was going for everyone on every level. Yeah, he was going for everything. Well, good luck on that. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger, move out. Gathering together to cause a cacophony of chaos. Three men have gathered outside the outskirts of Gotham City to speak about 
the Batman movie. Batman. Does anybody know who Batman is? Max, Batman. do you know anything about Batman? I think I've heard of something about this man that dresses like a bat. I might have seen that somewhere before. For those of you who can't see Max, his whole background, matter of fact, three quarters of his house is not only decorated in Batman stuff, but I believe Matt, uh, Max, you actually took uh, you took pieces off the set of the original Batman TV show to build your house, didn't you? You removed walls. I didn't. The house, the house is bet. made out of the original Batcave. <laughs> you bet. They were selling it cheap when uh, when they shut down Greenway Studios and. Uh, I used the bat pole to get to the bathroom in the basement. It's a hell to get that's back right. up. But that that's works. right. Especially especially late at night. Fumbling around trying to find Shakespeare's head. Pushing that red button. Oh, damn it. So, but we're not talking about the 66 Batman. We're talking about the making of the new Batman movie. And uh, in 1981... They were already talking about the making of a new movie. And, you know, they were uh, kicking the idea around for a couple of years. And I guess they talked about it during the uh, one of the uh, Year of the Bat promotions at the Comic Art Convention. And it's neat to, to, to read this article as they were talking about the movie that we now know came out in 1981 or 89. Sorry, uh, you know, the Batman movie with, with Michael Keaton. It's okay, Max. We know you're nervous. You haven't done this before. It's okay. You're doing a good job. Keep we know up. you don't know, know anything and, about Batman, Max. You know yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Batman. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, it's kind of, like I said, for me, it's, yeah, I thought it was really neat because when, when we were talking about, about doing this, it, I thought it was interesting to to look back and see what were they saying about a movie that we, you know, we all know, you know, the 89 movie, which led into the 92 movie both by Tim Burton and featuring Michael Keaton as the Batman. But here they're talking about, you know, has, you know, kind of knocking around ideas and how is it going to happen or it wasn't going to happen. And we know that it did happen. Right. And that that's what all, what's kind of cool about these old issues of, of uh, you know, I, I read Fangoria too. Fangoria and Starlog is reading the speculations at the time that like, you know, so-and-so is attached to this film. And it took like close to 10 years to eventually get a Batman film made. I mean, clearly they were riding high off the success of Superman. Superman was doing well. And they're like, well, you know, we, we did Superman. We got to do Batman. And I, and I think they even mentioned that in the article that they're like, you know, of course, mm-hmm. Batman's a logical choice for a film. But how long it takes a project to 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 gestate in Hollywood till it finally comes to fruition. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's great. And, and what it was, it you know thought of at the beginning to what it became you know and the thing is is if you if you look beyond this and you know because the the movie i mean was pitched to to everybody and everybody was turning it down you know for the longest time you know and different people were involved and then they weren't involved you know they had a an entirely different cast in mind at one time and uh you know so it's it's really interesting to think that you know people were actually turning this movie down they didn't want to do it is that because um, they thought it would be too much like the TV show, a little parody-ish and comedic, or or they just you know I, I, I don't know maybe they just didn't they just didn't see it as being something that was worth doing or or maybe they did think of you know that look we don't want to do the campy 
And even in this article that, that you know, they're talking to, they were talking, they actually talked to Adam West and he wanted to see some of, some of that, but go to a more, a darker side, you know, more serious side. And the, you know, the movies that, uh, you know, that were done in that time that were, you know, kind of comic book, you know, you're talking about, um, I mean, these guys that were looking to pitch this movie had, um, had also done, I had just done Swamp Thing, you know? So, you know, I mean, so the movies were things that people would want to see. And Superman was, was truly, you know, was a, it was a big movie. So, and and people, people enjoyed it. And, but uh, yeah, it just kept getting shot down and, you know, different producers would come in and, you know, and it wasn't until, I think it wasn't, I think uh, like 1986, by the time Burton was, became a part of the, part of the mix yeah it's, it's interesting you mentioned swamp thing because i i had that in my notes too about reading the article and, and swamp thing was a film if you ever read the swamp thing comic is as i did as a kid and, and and an adult it was a very dark um comic book and he he was he was a pretty cool character obviously a guy that was made out of uh you know muck from the swamp and so on lettuce but the, the the movie was very comic booky. They they did it almost. Mm-hmm. It is similar to the style of the Batman TV series because they even have like comic book panels as transitions to different yes. things. And, and there's like biffs and pows and things like that. And they, and they do a man in suit type thing. And they kind of do it a bit tongue in cheek, which is the way that they always seem to approach superhero movies back in the day. It's like we can't we can't take these guys seriously. We've just we've got to know you know. We're just doing a jokey thing. And I think Superman was the first movie to sort of say, all right, well, you can kind of do a, a serious yeah. superhero movie. Wait, you mean when they put Richard Pryor in Superman 3? Or, right. Uh... And, 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 <laughs> and that's what I always thought, too, was that the thing that always bothered me about Superman was I love Gene Hackman, and he's great in it. But, like, Ned Beatty was just like, okay, Mr. Luthor. Yeah, da, 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 da. <laughs> like, he, he was also like, in Deliverance, Rich. So right. That might explain something. I mean, just say but, it. But the, what the, the thing that they mentioned in this article that was kind of cool is that he said that he wanted to clearly take from the comic books. He, he, you know, he mentions uh, Finger and Kane, who created, uh, you know, Batman, Engelhart and Rogers run and O'Neill and Adams and O'Neill and Adams. Uh, they were the guys that really turned Batman into the dark Gothic hero that he sort of became. They, they, he, they were the ones that gave him, you know, Neil Adams Batman is is the iconic Batman you think of from the 70s. He's a very dark Batman. They had Batman fighting, you know, darker heroes. They had deeper stories. They they took him more serious because they were trying to get him out of that era where everyone was taking him as a as a campy figure from the 60s and turning him into more of a serious superhero. And Engelhart Rogers had him as more of a detective. Uh they were the guys that actually had the Joker as as a real serious villain with his his, you know, his, his gas is a serious villain yeah yeah so it was like you know they, they made him very very dark and so you can see they were they wanted to take it in that direction uh which is kind of interesting that that is the way they kind of did approach it in 89 when they did it they went for the serious approach and michael uslan who actually was a comic book writer himself was still involved with the film in 89 at that time mm-hmm I don't yeah, think matter you would have put Adam West in there like seriously. He would have been hard for me to accept this series. I know, I know he liked to be like less like he, he got sick of being called Batman. I've seen him in conventions, he just gets tired of it. And you can see why it must right. be annoying, but he wanted to give it a little more seriousness. I guess show some of his real 
acting skills as opposed to, hey, I can run with a shark on my leg with a big giant bomb, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, I don't, I don't think Uslan, you know, wanted, wanted to make that, that kind of a camp either, because right. so I, I think some of the studios that they first approached, they wanted that. And uh, it was like, not really the direction that they wanted to go. And they wanted to go into a, you know, a darker thing, more like killing joke or something like that. Yeah. Or the, right. what is it, the long Halloween or something, you know, I mean, it's, but I don't think I ever sat back and thought that, you know, hey, they were talking about making this movie back in probably 1980, you know, and it didn't oh, come yeah. out until 1989. You know, and you don't, I guess that's something you don't think of. And they, they 10 years in the making. In a way, it right. was simpler, right? You didn't have the internet. Like it was like, you know, to, to, and it was the same thing. Remember, like Michael Keaton as the choice for Batman, people were like, get out of here. That's insane. But oh, like, yeah. It wasn't oh, all day long. You had to listen to that because there was no internet screaming about it all the time. So it was like, like he, whatever. No, but we, no, but you did, you know, as it was coming up, yeah, you didn't hear about it for 10 years or, right. or when the casting was being done, um, like you did for the, you know, for later on with the, with the Ben Affleck, you know, when they were talking about it, because everybody knows everything right away. And, uh, you know, but, but we did hear, I did hear about it. People thought that, you know, Michael Keaton would, you know, it would be a terrible choice for Batman because I mean they're 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 thinking yeah. about Mr. Mom and they're thinking about you know this guy being a comedian and Mr. Mom 220, 230, whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever it takes, you know, 220, 221. <laughs> the movies just get better every year, right? Even like the Christian Bale, the Dark Knight, like that <clears throat> for me was like the first really DC movie that I really, really loved. I love them. They did a good job and so on. But yeah, no, I I I think it yeah, definitely, I that the, uh... huge impact. I love the Bale trilogy. I thought that was was amazing, and then that was right there. They took a lot from the Neil Adams O'Neill run. Yeah. Like Ray Sagul was created by by Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill, and uh, they talked about bringing him into the other trilogies as well, the early ones. And, and I enjoyed Batman Returns a lot. A lot of people don't like that one. That was Tim Burton's second outing. You know, with the is that the Clooney one? No, that's that the one was... with it's Keaton again. It was Keaton's last oh, time in Batman. It's got it's got Catwoman and it's got the Penguin. Oh yeah, I, yeah, the I, Penguin with the giant. Penguin. I watch it as a Christmas movie because it has it's set around Christmas time and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it's it's yep. it's it's a it's it's a lot more fun too. Not fun, but I I just enjoy it a lot, you know. Um, but and it's interesting the way they went went through this. They talk about in the article that they're like, well, we want to shoot on location in New York and Chicago, which obviously they didn't do with the early films. They they had sets in in London. Right. But when they did the Christian Bale ones, that they did shoot in Chicago and New York because it looks very much like Gotham City. They were trying to show Batman in the real world, so to speak, type thing. Uh, so even they did that eventually down the line for the Batman films. And I think you should just Bruce... go in the Max's basement. He <laughs> <laughs> could have shot it in my backyard. I'm telling you. Yeah, but there's no buildings out there. He has a two scale. He has a two scale. Uh, he has all the Bat Caves from uh, 1940. To uh, 1997, he has scale versions in the in his backyard over there. Yeah, I'm still working. I'm still working on the 2022 version now because <laughs> you know, you know, it takes a little while to put these things together. You know how it is. <laughs> what I missed that they didn't mention in the article is that there was no speculation as to who they would have cast. I would have liked to have known, like, who were they thinking of yeah, back in 1980. Nothing that they would have put yeah. in as Batman, you know, like who was the cast? I know, I know they talked to Adam West, but you know, there's no chance Adam West was going to be, he was already pushing probably 50 at that time. And um, he talks and they, they even mentioned in the article, like 
he currently starred in the happy hooker like okay yeah like they're but gonna they, put him right. in batman like it's like you know. but i remember when they did that movie when they did that batman movie if i remember correctly they interviewed i thought they interviewed adam west and i think they interviewed also caesar romero and asked him what he thought about like even jack nicholson playing the joker and Cesar Romero's comments were like, that's not what the Joker is. You know, that's, that's nothing like the Joker. I'm, you know, I was the original Joker. This is how it should be. And I'm like, right. Yeah. It wasn't quite that kind of show or movie, if you will. It wasn't right. like a, a comedy. Well, you know, it, it was very like protective, you know, of their, of their cast there or their characters. Well, it's interesting that, that, you know, the people that they actually did consider for the Joker at the time with Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow. What? You know, Ray Liotta. Yeah, for Batman. Yeah, I mean, for, for Batman, I mean, these that were all eighty nine. Yeah, for the eighty nine wow. movie. Yeah, that you know wow. that's. I mean, um, yeah, wow. it's, yeah. I mean, Tim so Curry? You know, that's, yeah, James Tim Woods. Curry? How about that? Yeah, Tim Curry. I think would have been a great. Batman. Tim Curry I think would have been. He played. He played Pennywise, and yeah, you know, he'd have been. I think he'd Devil have been a legend. He's he plays a lot of good villains. You know, and, and Wait, no, I think, for Batman or these are just to be in the movie? For these the are for people that they were thinking about being the Joker. Oh, the Joker. The, I'm sorry. Joker. I thought you guys said Batman. I'm like, holy shit. No, no, no. As the Joker. I mean, Joker, yeah. Tim, can you imagine David Bowie? Yeah, he would have been good. David Bowie. I think, I you know, know, I mean. He's not really an so, actor. I know he did some stuff, but he's not like, it's not really his thing, you know. Well, you know some of the people they thought of for Superman, right? They wanted. You said this to me once before. You told me somebody almost lost my shit when you told me Clint Eastwood, James Conn. Go ahead, shoot me, James James Conn. Dude, hold on a second. There's a curly headed dude right there, James (laughs) Conn. That's a curly headed guy. He should be in no. He should have never let him back into a movie with that curly hair. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. And Burt Reynolds, those were some of the choices they wanted for Superman. They just Reynolds. They wanted a big seventies name. Cannonball Run to Superman. That'd be yeah. fantastic. And I think Richard Richard Donner had to fight to get an unknown because nobody knew Christopher Reeve at the time, you know. Wow. And that was a smart way to go. Like, have Superman be somebody that nobody knows. Because otherwise, I mean, if it's Clint Eastwood, you're just going to be like, oh, that's Clint Eastwood in a Superman suit, you know, right. flying around, you know. No, Chris, I mean, Christopher Reeve, they, he looked like him. I mean, they did a good job with him. He, his, you know, proportionally, he was right and all that stuff. He wasn't, like, crazy. Because I've, I've watched some, there's, there's some really cool, like independent films and stuff. I've seen like Batman dead end and shit like that. Oh, yeah. And uh, they're very cool. The, the guys are unknown guys that do them, but the, the one guy who does, they did uh did you ever see uh Grayson? It's like a fake trailer. It's a oh, fake yeah. it's trailer yeah, for a fake movie. It. I mean, yeah. the guy that does Superman and that is Clark Kent. I'm like, the guy's got the square jaw. I'm like, Oh my God, that guy looks just like Superman. He's fantastic for it. But no, I think, I think, yeah, you're right. If they use like Clint Eastwood, it would just be Clint Eastwood without a gun and a leotard with a cape. You know, it wouldn't be Superman like you. Yeah, yeah, well, other other guys that were considered to play the the role of Batman were Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Bill Murray, Harrison Ford. Wait a minute, and Dennis Bill Murray? Murray. Come on, Mister yeah. Gopher. Come on, there Mr. you go. Gopher. Yeah. You see, Tom, Bill Murray wanted to be a serious actor. Like he's he, he still kind of does. You know, he's he's always like, I don't want to be. They, all, they funny. all want to do something else. Be serious, right? but yeah. 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 And that was, you know, that was back then. I mean, that's, you know, obviously that was mid eighties, you know, so, right. wow. you know, think about them then, you know, and uh, yeah. So, I mean, out of that group, I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know, that 
it did go Michael Keaton. I mean, I could have seen, you know, I could have seen Tom Selleck playing the part. I, I, you know, maybe. Would they have made him shave his mustache? Yeah, that, see, and I think that might have been the, that, I think that would have been the reason why they, they he would have turned that one down, I guess. You know, no, yeah. Tom Selleck with no mustache, I'd be like, uh, it'd be like an airplane with no wings. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it just, just, useless. It just wouldn't make sense. It's useless. Yeah, it's, Costner, I can't yeah. see. I don't know. Mm. You know, some of those guys are just too. Yeah, I mean, Costner, no way. Like, he played Robin Hood with an American accent. Everybody has a British accent except for him. I'm like, is can he not do one, or he just? I don't know. It's like whatever. The problem but, um, they've always had with the Batman movies is that the the villains always outshine Batman. They either yeah. pack the movie with villains, or the villain has to be because of the way the comic books were. The villain has to be so mm-hmm. over the top that it right. just takes away from Batman, and Batman's just this dour, quiet guy the whole time. You know, that some of the it, superhero right? movies around. Yes, yeah. yeah, it showed they could be done because, I, and I think that was the fear. The why it didn't get done for so many years because everybody had the taste of the old Batman TV series in their mouth and like oh it's just going to be this campy thing and know, a lot of bad it's... movies Rich they tried to do yeah. what Captain America Fantastic Four right and they were like made for TV or made for for V and they were horrible right you know right. to get because I think they tried to just take a comic book that was a cartoon and just transform it into real people and there was no difference when they did Batman with Michael Keaton it was definitely different it wasn't the comic book anymore right it wasn't I mean, exactly comic book if you talk about thing i remember the same thing right around when batman was made they were starting like then they started talking about they wanted to make a spider-man movie and that didn't come out till you know to the 2000s so it's like yeah it took Batman. i remember all the rumors about the different spider-mans and mm-hmm. who was going to be in that and who was going to direct it and, and everything and i mean thank god it came out when it did because they had the technology to make it better you know oh, yeah that then they would have done it back in 1989 or like him a $300,000 suit as opposed to a $12 99 cent pair of pajamas. Right. You know, that they, that they did to make the costumes then. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's a huge difference. It really is. uh, It's it's quite, it's quite an evolution of it, if you will. He is the resident Batman fan collector and expert Max Overnighter appearing pop popping out of windows everywhere over on Migo like doing his lives i am the vilest of villains dr durant you can find me on youtube at dr durant sanctum where i talk about uh comic books and monsters and toys and whatever i fancy my real name is rich hurley and he my, likes my alias he likes he likes to see curly hair on men i think that's uh <laughs> That's why my favorite villain on Batman was Vincent Price as Egghead, because he had no hair at all. <laughs> and I just sit back and type web pages all day. I think that's about what I'm doing at this point. Uh, you can find on YouTube My Meagle Like. You can go to the website MyMeagleLike.com, which is upwards of, I think it's almost 200 pages now of action figures, toys, and Actually, it'll be more because Rich just sent me some stuff I have to put up there and a couple other people. And then, of course, on the Facebook page, Mego Like, which is the friendliest Facebook page on the planet where we talk openly about toys, comics, costumes, movies, curly hair on men. I have no idea why that keeps coming up. And I think, yeah, I think that's about it. I think (laughs) don't get the wrong idea. (laughs) 
from a compassionate gorilla to a Venusian monster to mythological titans, an interview with Ray Harryhausen. Now, Ray Harryhausen was featured in a previous issue of Starlog magazine, but now his work is in the forefront because of the amazing work that was shown in Clash of the Titans. Clash of the Titans was um, a groundbreaking movie back then. And and the artwork and the, the stop motion, everything, all the character movements, it, it was all amazing. So a very well done job. It totally was. The, the fact that in this article he mentions that he was born in California and what inspired him to get into movies and specifically stop motion animation was King Kong, the original. Yeah, another um, awesome classic movie that had great visuals for the time. He ended up getting involved in the movie scene and then worked on various projects. One of the earliest that's most well known is Mighty Joe Young. So that that was another great movie with with this um great animation. He went on to create such classics as the Sinbad movies, Jason and the Argonauts. That was my first foray in the movie theater seeing Jason and the Argonauts. I remember having nightmares that night and my mother telling my grandfather, "Dad, don't bring him to movies like that. He's just a kid." Like, seeing those skeletons come alive freaked me out. Yeah, it was, in some way it was made for kids, but they didn't realize how frightening it could be sometimes. And with this next project, Clash of the Titans, he expresses that what his goal in the animation of this movie was to work more closely with bringing back the hero to movies. In the interview, he mentions that there's too much focus on the anti-hero. He wants classic stories where the hero is the cl- the clear winner. And going back to Greek mythology, this is the perfect match. Uh, the story of Perseus was always a cool story, and it, and it had all the mythological elements, Medusa that everyone knew about, and, and having the Titan and having the Greek gods. It, it all worked well together. I always loved Greek mythology. And he said he really loved working with everyone in the film as well. Because this was unique in that it had a larger budget than his previous films. And it was it was at the point now where people were expecting more. In the 70s, the, the expectations were there, but the stakes weren't as high. Now, every movie that was coming out that was either sci-fi or fantasy had to have bigger and better special effects. It wasn't just story, but the special effects had to be there. Another um, of the repercussions of Star Wars having having set that bar, but, he, but the movie did have that. it. Yeah, but it but it certainly did have the special effects that lived up to it. Uh, he said that people in the industry were going up to him and saying, "Ray, you got to stop it with this stop motion. Don't you see that Star Wars and ILM is the way to go? That you have to move forward and do more collaborative efforts." Work with computers, work with technology. And he said that he found these comments quite frustrating. Well, he he stuck with what he knew, and, and he knew he could make it work. And the fact that he said that in order for this to work on this level, he was used to working totally by himself into the wee hours of the morning, working with a stop motion, working with the clay. But he had to build a team now that would do this with him. And... Every time we see stop-motion animation, for the most part, all the little figurines are, are one foot or under. But for this movie, we see that the Kraken was over four feet tall, the statue of Athena, again, over a yard tall. 
he had to make everything bigger and it took longer and he had to have more people involved because of this grand production. So it is very time consuming. That's one reason it, it's easier to do it with computer animation today. But, but yeah, but for the time, I mean, I mean, it looked awesome. So he put this work into it because he knew it would pay off. And we recently did a rewatch of this movie in preparation for this. And, and as we read along with Starlog, I think that's part of the charm of Clash of the Titans is when we're viewing it along with other movies of this time period, it stands out. It looks different. I want it to look different. And, and I think the setting for Greek mythology is perfect. So let me ask you, what if, because we know the technology was there, a year later we would get Tron. So computers were moving fast forward and, and working its way into the movie scene. What do you think if it wasn't Ray Harryhausen and his classic style of stop motion animation? What if it was just computerized or trick effects of, of the lens as opposed to this visual style do you think it would change the movie much it, it would have been a different look and I, I mean you know they they did make a more modern version of it with with computer animation i, I mean yes yeah, so, so it has been done but but it, it would have completely changed the look of this and for for what they did though i mean i think it was perfect to use to use what they the way they did it because it's the way you you bring out the creatures mm-hmm. you you model all their um you know how you notice so much of the details on on the monsters, the creatures, all of their, the 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 chest, the face, the um, the head, everything was just so perfect the way they did it, and they just, you know, they would have tried something completely different if they could have done it with computers, which would have looked different and just wouldn't have had the same effect. Exactly, he mentions how difficult it was to have Calibos fight Perseus because they were doing the back and forth between the real actors and the stop-motion animation at a higher grade than it was in his Sinbad movies and how it was very difficult for the actors. you got, you got to remember at this time, this was not a common thing for actors to fight in a green screen. It was here and there. It wasn't the standard, whereas now actors are, are trained for that in school. Yeah, it was it was a different thing, and... And the actors having to get used to sort of to, to it's almost play acting. I mean, yeah, without without having the real set behind them, it it's probably very different for them. But it but it the way it comes out is great. I mean, if you get a good actor that knows how to do the expressions without without really having anything to look at, I mean, yeah, it could, it could be great when you when you see the final product. Do you have any outstanding moments in the movie where you just said, "I I love this look of the animation." My, my thing in it was seeing um, seeing Perseus fly on Pegasus and the horse with the wings. That that was just a beautiful sight, you know, flying in the sky. And and here we have our hero that rises above everyone else physically. <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah, the article mentions that that was a very difficult scene because they had to keep going back and forth with the real horse and the animated horse. Because the close-ups had to have a real horse. You had to feel that Perseus was riding a real horse. And, and I think they did pull off the effect perfectly. Yeah, it looked good. And it and it looked like, you know, like the horse was really moving and, and like Perseus was really in the air. So it, it all worked out. It was great. Also, the Kraken. I never stopped to think about this, but in order to get the effects for the Kraken, they had to have the model already somewhat broken up from the inside 
and then pour the water on top and have everything. And they had to film it in, in high speed film so that when the final product came out, it looked like the Kraken was crumbling under the power of the water. When in reality, the whole scene took just a few seconds to film. It, it looked fantastic. It, you they, felt yeah. that it was, it was huge. That was a great effect too. Um, see, seeing the Kraken come down like that. It, it looked real. It looked like, it looks like it really could happen that way, the way we saw it. And my all time favorite of this movie was the scene with Medusa. I remember seeing this in the movie theaters, sitting next to my brother, and I whispered to him, close your eyes. If you don't, you're going to turn into stone. And he really did. He closed his eyes. He put his hand over his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Medusa and how she looked. The the look of slithering. I remember you talking about how the, um, well, well, the whole scene, the way they, uh, they didn't show Medusa's face at first. And I mean the you know the the director the oh, way the, the director cinematography it. behind it built built tension yes yes and how each of the snakes had its own motion yeah everything everything moved all of her hair it it actually each one moved in its own direction and it, it was interesting that Medusa was not a talking character she was just a figure of mm. of pure evil just the villain uh, just had her weapon. And and the fact that when you when now reading this article and thinking about it and looking at his previous films, he could not do that by himself. He needed a team to make each motion of the snakes move. It would just take too long. So you compare that to skeletons or to the giant creatures that were were in Jason and the Argonauts. You you could see that. There's no possible way one person can do this because there were just so many creatures in this movie. And the giant crab, he said they actually used a real crab. They stopped motion animation, not something that they created in a shop, but there was a real crab. Wow, that's something. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we could both agree that this was the pinnacle of Ray Harryhausen's work, that being Clash of the Titans. Are you a fan of horror movies? Necronomicon Ex Mortis, the book of the dead. With all cult classics. Your move, creep. If you are, you'll love shocking things. Please search for us on all the major podcasting platforms. To see our social media and a direct link to our podcast, just go to anchor.fm slash shocking things. Nineteen eighty one was a great year for TV shows. Let's talk about some of our favorite TV shows and some of the events that happened that year. Eddie Van Halen marries one day at a time star Valerie Bertinelli. Now that was certainly newsworthy. Van Halen was popular at that time. Weird Al makes his first TV appearance on the Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. We literally just watched that Weird Al documentary, and I say that in quotes. Uh, movie, the movie. <laughs> it was a movie, like, what? <laughs> it was hysterical. We're talking 40 years later. The guy is nonstop with his hystericalness. Yeah, it was a movie that he produced that was on streaming that starred Daniel Radcliffe. And, um, yeah, it, it was just hilarious. And it and it had some great stuff. Um, so for those of us, of course, who follow Weird Al, I mean, it had a lot of his popular songs 
and of course made up stories about how the songs came about. But it, it was just so funny. <laughs> yeah, and to think about that, he made a national TV appearance in 1981 on Tom Schneider was pretty incredible for for someone who was just a kid making goofy songs. And it, you remember him when when he first started. Another one rides the bus and oh my Bologna. Exactly, I love Rocky Road. I mean, those early songs were were on a kazoo. Where you, you could tell that it was low production value, but his creative genius was amazing. And and to hit to be on the Tom Schneider show was pretty amazing. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't take him seriously at the time because because he did all this you know silly stuff and making up making up new what lyrics to these tunes that everybody knew. But but I mean he he eventually just became a star, made a lot of money off that. And and think of the fact that that's one of the things when I first started dating you, you're like your Weird Al knowledge was amazing. It's like every nerd can relate to Weird Al songs. Yeah, because he he was just so great at it, and and you know and his and his goofy look too that helps him. <laughs> also in 1981, the Harlem Globetrotters starred on Gilgan's Island TV movie. I remember watching that. I was a big yeah. Harlem Globetrotters fan. Yeah, me too. I, I, well, I remember watching it because I was a big Gilligan's Island fan. But yeah, Harlem Globetrotters, of course, you know, had their own Saturday morning cartoon as well. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it was cool. They were, um, you know, they were a big thing back then. I remember when I first went to a Harlem Globetrotters game, the New Haven Coliseum, and I asked my dad, I was like, these guys are amazing. Why aren't they in the NBA? He goes, but they're really not good basketball players. And I'm like, you could spin a ball on your finger. You could do all these <laughs> things that Larry Bird can't do. How could they not be better basketball players? Like my little mind couldn't understand it. But I remember getting a uh, forty-five record of Sweet Georgia Brown. I would play that thing over and over again. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, but it was pretty neat. Yeah, the stuff they can do. I I know I saw them like didn't they have specials on TV. Yeah, and, yeah, they were just amazing. And and of course they didn't actually play basketball. They just they did shows. They did, you know, they did stunts with basketballs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, oh, it was it was amazing. I, I think that was such a great combination because it's so outrageous. Yeah, and the fact that these guys were all different heights too, and they could work well together, and, mm-hmm. and it helped their show. MTV would change the way we viewed music. Uh, the first video to air on this new network was Video Killed a Radio Star by the Boggles. And that was prophetic. It was. Well, I think, it, you know, it was intentional that that was the first video that they chose to show. Um, and where I lived, our cable company did not have MTV at first, so I didn't I didn't see it when it first came on. But but I did know that video. I got to see the video on TV. Yes, yeah, so I do remember. I don't it. believe we had cable in 1981. I think we were still just on the turn the channel. Yeah, my brother and I were the remote controls. Right, right for for a while. Yeah, that's the way it was. Elvira's movie Macabre debuts. Another one who had just become internationally famous. The character of Elvira, portrayed by Cassandra Peterson. To this day, you still see people cosplay as her. Yeah, she was huge, and I don't even know. Like, I remember hearing about her and not even knowing, like, what she was famous for, except for that look, which is basically it. And Series 18 of Doctor Who would mark Tom Baker's final regular appearance as the Doctor. 1981 would move on from Doctor Number 4. Yeah, that's amazing to think, too. Um, So Series 18, of course, the British call it 
a series instead of a season like we do. So, so the show had already been on for 18 seasons. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's something spectacular too. Debuting in 1981, The Smurfs. Okay. I do remember that. I didn't really watch it when it first came on, but I started watching it later. And remember I, how yeah. popular those little figurines were? Yeah. I mean, the Smurfs were everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Um, yeah, great show with the Six Million Dollar Man, yeah. <laughs> Dynasty? Yeah, another show I used to watch, and that was one, I think I started watching because my father said, hey, that that's the voice of Charlie that's on that show. And you're like Joan Collins, she was in Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest American Hero? Yeah, and of course, that like the famous theme song from that show that everyone loved. Even Believe if you, it or not. <laughs> even if you didn't watch this show. <laughs> I would get frustrated. My brother and I would get frustrated because we're like, how stupid can this guy be? I mean, Superman can fly. How, how could he not figure out how to fly? You know, he was like always clumsy when he was trying to fly. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate klutz. The <laughs> ultimate, like, not a superhero guy. Spider-Man and his amazing friends was... Unbelievable on Saturday mornings. We love that show. One of my favorite shows. And um, it, it actually had character development, which a lot of cartoons, you know, on Saturday morning didn't have. So it was just wonderful to watch. And they debuted a new character for the show, Firestar, which I thought she was a great addition. Yeah, I loved Firestar. And the, and the way um, the three main characters played off each other was good, too. They were all friends, but they could all joke, joke around. I mean, I, I loved seeing that camaraderie on the show. I, I distinctly remember because I had an X-Men comic from like 1978, I believe. It was X-Men number 113. And uh, looking at, I was like, Dad, because my father walked in. He goes, oh, Iceman from the X-Men. I was like, X? he's in the X-Men? I was like, I'm looking through my comics. I'm like, I don't see him. He's like, oh, the real X-Men. Like he called the all new X-Men, not the real X-Men, Wolverine and. Oh yeah, with Nightcrawler. Yeah, he he like he couldn't relate to those. He's like, no, I'm gonna show you next time we find a comic with the real X Men in it. I'll show you. He used to be a snowman before he was an Iceman, and I was like, a snowman? What is he talking about? <laughs> and then I saw the early issues. I was like, Iceman really was a snowman before he was an Iceman. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I guess they changed and updated the characters. Black and, and Star? Having, yeah, I'm having sorry. the snow and the ice, too. Fire Star and Iceman. Yeah, what a great combo. Yeah. Black Star, another cartoon, uh, which it was like predated He-Man in the, in the sense that it, it predated He-Man as a cartoon of being that muscle-bound fantasy hero with elements of magic and kind of sci-fi with this sword that glowed. The Kids Superpower Hour with Shazam. Yeah, Shazam was always great. What what I really liked was just seeing that first the intro part where they sh they had the um the animated gods they always talked about at the beginning. Zeus, Mercury, and Hercules, all of those. Yeah. That part was really great. Mr. Merlin, another fantastic show of the era. You can't do that on television, on Nickelodeon Network. I loved that because that was my first exposure to slime. Oh, okay. Remember that was a big deal? Yeah. People slime. getting slimed yeah. in the UK, Danger Mouse, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What about shows that ended in 1981? Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. How did that affect you? 
Uh, well, the thing is, it was after this, you know, like the second season wasn't as good anyway. But yeah, it was a disappointment that it ended. I mean, if they could have brought it back and gone back to what they had done the first season, <laughs> that would have been good. The Muppet Show also ended. Yeah, too bad. That show was, was on a while, and they had such great guests on it. And also, this would be the final season of Charlie's Angels. Yeah, and I always liked that show. Um, it, it was it was funny to see how the angels kept changing every season. But yeah, you could tell it was finally going downhill the last season. It just became less serious. I mean, less than it already was. Now we're going to do a wrap-up of the convention scene and talk about what it was like to go to Music City Multicon. Music City Multicon with my main man, Jamie. Jamie, what do you think about this convention? It's pretty awesome. I mean, it definitely brings back a lot of memories or a lot of great memories just associated with video games. Uh, I mean, it's everything you could possibly think of. Consoles, going ColecoVision, Atari, Sega, stand-ups, pinballs. Yeah, exactly. It's got every... Every video game, if you played it in the U.S. US of A, you've, you've definitely seen any of all these systems or most of these systems. And most of the, most of these games, especially the cabinet ones, they're retro. Anybody in anybody that grew up in the 80s would recognize the majority of these in a heartbeat. What do you love about coming to a convention like this? I mean, I guess it's, you know, it makes you sentimental. It re, you reconnect. It makes me, it's good for humility because I've... I remember how bad I am at these games, and it's <laughs> so yeah. I, but yeah, it's it's absolutely fun. It's nice not to have any worries, not to care about anything. Just come in, kind of like as a kid, and just play video games. Just hone in on it. In the not so distant future, on a planet called Earth, it's Underoos. Star Wars Boba Fett is here. That means Darth Vader's always near. C-3PO is lots of style. And R2-D2 just makes me smile. Star Wars Underoos are here, yeah! Something out of sight in underwear. <laughs> Don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underoos are for Earthlings. Starlog Magazine, issue number 52. Cover date, November 1981. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. NPR's fall lineup, Hobbits, Horror, and Homes. First, they transported listeners into deep space with the Star Wars radio show. Then they arranged a jolly jaunt via BBC Radio's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This fall, National Public Radio's NPR Playhouse has scheduled a hazardous journey through Middle Earth, several stopovers into the supernatural and mysterious adventures in Victorian London. So because of these other programs that were popular, NPR is going to branch out and start doing more of these radio adaptions, specifically The Lord of the Rings in 26 half-hour episodes, which I've heard it before, and it's pretty impressive. Also from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation comes Nightfall, a 13-week adventure into the realm of terror and supernatural, and NPR stations have available the BBC's Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Three-part serializations include The Hounds of Baskerville, The Signs of the Four, The Valley of Fear, and The Empty House. 
I was not one to hear any of these live on the radio. I ended up hearing them later on on cassette tape. You know, listen to some things later. I know that, like, they can be good. They the way they they add the special effects and having the voices and the music. Yeah, they can they can be really cool. MPAA ratings under fire. The National Coalition on Television Violence has added feature films to their list of objectionable forms of entertainment. Chairman Dr. Thomas Radecki has claimed that the current rating system administered by the Motion Picture Association of America is outmoded. He told Variety that films such as Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars were far too violent for their PG ratings. Dr. Radecki would like to see films like those receive X ratings, no one under 18 admitted, because of their violent content. Okay, can you imagine if Star Wars was rated X? Yeah, that's that's weird. I mean, it's not what we <laughs> think of, of as an X-rated movie. I mean, this guy is, is out there. Well, the funny thing is, George Lucas had to add some scenes because of the fact that originally Star Wars would have passed a G rating. And he wanted to make sure it wasn't G because he felt it would be viewed as too childish and teenagers wouldn't go to it. Uh, we did do a rewatch of Raiders of the Lost Ark recently. And boy, it, you see the German mechanic get his head cut up with the blades of a plane. That was pretty intense. I mean, there was some stuff there. I, I remember in the movie theater, my brother loved that part. I mean, kids, kids do like violence. That's just the way it is. That's a bit extreme, though, saying that these action-adventure and sci-fi movies can only be viewed by adults? Well, Ra Raiders did have some stronger material. Um, and I do remember hearing that they they really w thought it should be rated somewhere in between PG and R, and that's why they came up with PG-13. And that happened with the... Temple of Doom. Yeah, that's, that's what that spawned it, the pulling hearts out. Yeah, yeah so Temple of Doom was yeah it had even stronger material. That one was more disturbing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and Star Wars even having, it, it, it had the violence, but it was just, it, I still see it as G-rated violence. It was just the kind, like you don't see blood or anything. Mm -hmm. And they also had problems with James Bond movies, which, uh, uh, with Dragon Slayer. I mean, it's gonna go on and on. So this discussion of should there be a middle ground predates Temple of Doom. This discussion has been going on for some time before we get a solid PG-13. And what I've heard some people say as well that, you know, the parents, they just need to decide what they want to let their kids see. Yeah, and your parents were like mine. There was a point where my father didn't care if we watched radar movies. Yeah, yeah some parents don't care. I mean, I, I mean, if they know their kids are mature enough. Well, that's a frustration. You look back in 1979, they were making toys based on Alien, a rated R movie. Yeah, the, these kind of um, inconsistencies there, yeah. I mean, I think the kids would just like the toys anyway if they saw the movie or not. Hello, Starlog friendos. Welcome to Starpod Log. This episode, we're going to feature The Powers of Matthew Starr, featuring Peter Barton. Um... The year was 1981. The month was November. Bert Bruce was a lowly worker in a lumberyard that was a drive through lumberyard, freezing his fingers off and going to school, night school, part-time. In a lonely 
Indiana outback town. It was awful, folks. It was just awful. Don't even ask. But anyway, I'm just giving you some uh, backstory to talk about Peter Barton of The Powers of Matthew Starr. Let's do a little deep dive into this actor's background. Unmarried Peter Barton was born July 19th, 1956, making him 66 years old. Never married, no children. He's a film and television actor. His big uh, claim to fame, of course, is Powers of Matthew Starr with the much better Louis Gossett Jr. Louis Gossett Jr., who you know from An Officer and a Gentleman, as well as Enemy Mine, which is a great little film. And if you're going to waste your time, go watch that right now. I did a deep dive and watched the uh, pilot episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr. And it was produced by none other than Harv Bennett. And it's got a little bit of Star Trek DNA in it. Because Harv Bennett, of course, went on to produce Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 5 with the original cast. And uh, Peter Barton said that uh, if the powers of Matthew Starr had not gone forward, he may have been offered a... Uh, a role in the Star Trek films. But of course, Matthew Starr did get produced for 22 episodes. But the other actor in the pilot is Judson Scott. Judson Scott, of course, played the son of Khan Noonien Singh, also known as Ricardo Mart Mont Montalban. Easy for me to say. Anyway, Judson Scott dies at the end and says, yours is a superior intellect, Rosebud. And then, of course, uh, Khan says, I will avenge you, Joaquin. And he really kind of doesn't because uh, he dies at the end. But then again, so does Spock. Spoiler! Star Trek Two. Spoiler alert! Star Trek Two. Mr. Spock dies at the end. Yeah, it's 40 years later, people. If you don't know Spock died, uh, I can't help you. All right, back to Peter Thomas Barton, better known as Peter Barton. Uh, his list of his credits include, here we go, his list of roles in film. He was in Stir. His role was Warder with Rifle. 1981, he did Hell Knight with Linda Blair. He was Jeff Reed. 1984, in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, though it really wasn't, he played Doug. 2000, he played uh, Jack in A Man is Mostly Water. And then finally, 2005, he played... Terry Goldstein in repetition. Don't ask. If we go to his, I'm not going to hit every role he played on in television, but his first gig was with Shirley Jones, who you know is Shirley Partridge from the Shirley Partridge Show, Partridge Family, and uh, I think he was the uh, David Cassidy clone because he does. He's five foot nine, pretty boy with feathered hair. You you do the math, people. He played. Uh, Shirley's son in that uh, it failed TV show. It didn't last but 13 episodes. He did something in 1982 called Leadfoot. Never heard of it. It's a TV special. Then, of course, he did 22 episodes of The Powers of Matthew Starr. He was also featured in Love Boat, Family Guy, Vanity Fair, Rags to Riches. But he was mostly known as a soap opera. He did both The Young and the Restless and The Bold and the Beautiful. Last thing they show him uh, appearing in was uh, Baywatch in 1991. But he was also 
in Love Boat, The Next Wave. Did you know there was a Love Boat, The Next Wave? I did not. He played Tom, so go figure, in an episode called It Takes Two to Tango, which is true. It does take two to tango. Anyway, Peter Barton seems like a real nice guy. No judgment. I did do a deep dive, and I did go back and watch the pilot episode, which, to my surprise, was for its era, it wasn't bad. Um, they uh, included some major stunts. They had a bus crash. No one was injured. They had a uh, scene at the uh, end of the episode in a junkyard, and Judson Scott proceeds to toss, like, heavy 55-gallon barrels and cars at him. And, of course, with his superpowers of telekinesis and telepathy, he was able to thwart his enemy, which was very interesting. I'm going to do a little side note here about Peter Barton, and this is, again, from Wikipedia. Wait until you hear this. This is really interesting. In his personal life, this happened. This really happened to Peter Barton. I'm not making this up, man. Listen to this. Okay, personal life. On July 16th, 2012, a man in Illinois named Ray Falk, F-U-L-K, Falk, died at age 71. Falk, who had no family of his own, was a fan of Peter Barton and Barton's friend, Kevin Brophy. You know Kevin Brophy from Lucan, L-U-C-A-N. It was like a werewolf show. Despite never having met either actor, Falk bequeathed, I can't say that word, bequeathed half of his $1.3 million estate to each of the actors. The story of their good fortune was featured in episode 103 of the TLC show, Suddenly Rich, and they were. So talk about a charmed life. Here's Peter Barton. As a young man, he studied uh, at pharmacology college for two years, decided that wasn't making it, and he could make more money as a model and uh, in advertising, and he did. And then, of course, uh, NBC took note of him and put him on retainer, used him in the uh, episodes with Shirley Jones and the uh, TV show Shirley, which, again, uh, failed. And then he went on to do 22 episodes of The Powers of Matthew Starr. Now, let's talk about Matthew Starr for a few minutes or seconds. <laughs> I'm not going to go that deep into Matthew Starr. It's basically the Superman story. Uh, Lou, Ga Lou Gossett Jr. is his mentor and his protector. Uh, his parents are killed on a faraway planet, and they have to come to Earth to uh, survive because the evil aliens who took over his planet are trying to kill him because they realize when he comes into his full power, he will be able to destroy them. Now, the uh, past 16 years in the pilot, they've spent running from town to town trying not to be discovered or captured or killed by said alien entities, which include Judson Scott. But in this episode, they... Uh, Go to a small town, and uh, Lou Gossett becomes a science teacher. And, of course, uh, Peter Barton is a student there. Well, it turns out that the uh, evil aliens have tracked him down. And uh, in the school, the way that you can tell if they're evil aliens, their pulse is only 12 beats per minute. So uh, Lou Gossett tries to uh, test uh, the new student, female student in the class. Well, of course, she jumps up and runs, leaves out the uh, science class. P 
Peter Barton and Lou Gossett follow her into the gymnasium where there's a swimming pool. She tries to shoot them with her alien uh, device. It fails, and uh, with telekinesis, Peter Barton steals the weapon from her. Well, she jumps into the pool, and she proceeds to uh, blow up. Turns out she was a robot. So they pull off her face, and there's a robot face. It, like Maskatron from Six Million Dollar Man. She's Maskatron, only made female. But it's it, that's probably the only reason to go to YouTube and watch that pilot episode is that scene. Well, the, the end scene at the junkyard is not bad. They did some nice special effects there. It's actually uh, not bad. I'm going to give them high marks for throwing around cars in a junkyard. Is it would it be up to today's standards? No, not at all. But for 1981, wasn't bad. Wasn't bad. Um, anyway, the article. I'm not going to quote from it. It's this guy is deadly dull. He said he really just studied acting and karate and dance, and that he uh, his first home he had a mat that he slept on the floor and he just tried to stay busy learning his craft. Yeah, great. Okay, buddy. He said if he did get typecast, which he was prepared for, he said that he knew that he'd have to surrender his privacy and that he'd become uh, super famous, but that hopefully within five to ten years he would be able to go on to other things. Well, it didn't quite work out the way he wanted it to. Uh, NBC really didn't promote the show, and they the budget was mediocre at best. You could tell they didn't spend a lot of money on it. The actors were all, except for Lou Gossett Jr., uh, they were not... Uh, a-list, they were more B and C grade. And it was a pretty pedestrian pilot. He meets the cute little red-haired rich girl, and she falls for him. And her uh, ex-evil boyfriend tries to uh, uh, beat him up. But, of course, with his powers, that's not going to happen, is it? So it, it was. it's a pedestrian pilot, and it's a plot that you've seen countless times. Superman's done it much better. But... It, you know, for 1981, what do you want? Come on. What do you want for that that era of entertainment? They Let's put it this way. Harv Bennett stuck with what he knew. He was, you know, raised in that type of episodic television, and you got what you paid for, you know? It was 47 minutes of pretty much bland entertainment. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. It wasn't very good. But there were some pieces in it that were likable, but the plot itself was pedantic and it is what it is. But Peter Barton seemed like a pretty nice guy. Sorry, his career uh, didn't go the way he wanted it to, but it sounds like he uh, he was able to act in some stuff. If, you know, if I had on my resume Friday the 13th, the final chapter, I'd be a pretty happy guy. <laughs> the only thing I ever got to be in was uh, an extra in a film here in South Carolina called Walker Payne with Jason Patrick. Go look that one up. Yeah, I'm in that movie, though. It's true. I'm an extra. Well, I take that back. I'm in another one with James Kahn called The Program. I've been an extra in a couple of different films here in South Carolina. And, uh, yeah, big deal. Anyway, thanks for listening. You star, star pod log listeners are the best. Presenting New York's first science fiction museum, the Museum of the Surreal and Fantastique. Joining me with this discussion is... Greg Newell. I'm with the Aliens Legacy. I'm G-Man on the boards. So, Greg, did you always grow up as a alien fan, or is this something that developed into adulthood? How, how did you get into the Alien franchise? 
I grew up in the 70s. I was born in 75. So hit the prime whenever I was growing up with the whole Star Wars and anything that had to do with science fiction. That really grabbed me. And with Giger and um, his design of the alien um, concept and just the way that the alien would camouflage itself into the ship and stuff whenever it was hiding and the bio-organic, um, I can't think of the word, but where it looks with the tubes and everything and it would cool in. I mean, that concept just really grabbed me. And so the visual stunningness of it goes to Giger. I mean, w- without his input, the movie would look and feel so different. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think just the height of the actor that played the alien... I mean, that's something that we really hadn't seen before, um, Chewbacca in Star Wars with height like that. Um, but the African, I can't think of his name right now, but the African-born um, individual that played the alien, um, it, it was just unreal. We hadn't seen that before. It's amazing that to, to think about in the 80s that there was the idea of presenting a museum that would highlight and celebrate fantasy and science fiction. I mean, we grew up with Boris Vallejo and Ken Kelly and it goes on and on when, when you think of the greats of, of the worlds of science fiction and fantasy. And one that has to be on that list is Giger. People who were putting this museum together said when they saw the pictures from Necronomicon, they knew that Giger's artwork was so spectacular that it needed to be elevated more than just on, on a bookshelf. Oh, yeah, and he has transcended just not um, in his artwork, but also if you look in other movies such as Species and then also into the music um, genre, that's another one that I got into. Um, Not only did he do stuff for Blondie whenever Deborah Harry, um, he painted her um, up in his biomechanical design biomechanical that was the word i was looking for but also jonathan davis from corn um his microphone stand was designed in by that and that's another one where you can just see where his influence is just spread out across all genres and it's amazing how when you think about it that the art that we love that we grew up with is not considered high-value art to the point where it would be in a, in a museum in Manhattan because it's considered commercial art. But fans, we look at it totally different. Oh, yeah, and we look at all sport, sorts of things where we can go and we can celebrate um, all the things that we love. And, I mean, you look at the museums. Um, there's a museum in Seattle that has a bunch of the um, individual things for science fiction. Um, You look at traveling museums that go around, um, George Lucas for the Star Wars, um, how they go from museum to museum and they'll have displays. And I think it really shows just the fan groups getting together, all together coming, and that's what the big thing is. It isn't who's got the most toys, who's got the most accurate thing. It's just the fans coming together, talking, sharing stories, and just building that between them. So when we we look at these artists of the 70s and 80s that are in the art world just labeled as commercial artists, we look at it now, 40 years later, we're seeing it through a different lens. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can still see how their work influences stuff today. Like I was saying earlier about um, Jonathan Davis and Korn, um, you start looking at how, um, even looking at H.R. Giger and how his stuff still influences and it comes out, and you look at stuff that... um, credits him as stuff that they go back, they look at his artwork that he put together, and they come up with new things today on it. Um, I know, like, um, Alex and Tom from um, AGI, 
for their special effects. I mean, they did the special effects on aliens and talking with both of them. I know they are heavily influenced whenever they do their monsters and concepts, just using him as an influence and how big of an influence he is in the special effects community. And I, I look back at this article and think of how there were some people that were trying to preserve these pieces of art. But we find out later on that works from Dungeons and Dragons, they were all thrown away or a lot of them were thrown away. Whereas now we look at it as being iconic work. Uh, the Heidelbrands during that time period in the 70s and 80s were looked down upon in, in the art community but now they're praised so we're actually seeing more of an appreciation now for it i think something like this would work out now more so than it than it did then unfortunately this museum was not commercially successful yeah and that's what you see a lot um things will go through phases what's commercially um profitable what's not i mean um over in Switzerland, where H.R. Giger is from, I mean, they've got the museum that's just for him. And, I mean, you start looking at the technology and the stuff they got, um, CGI, if it's done right, is good. Um, but just look at the tools. If he was in this era, what he could do now, it would just be amazing. Just looking at what he did back then, I mean, you're just blown away by it. Yeah, no doubt about it. So all we can say is we, we have to try to preserve as much as we can as fans the memory of of these pictures even though we look at it back then it was a niche thing now fandom has exploded and we when we go to conventions we we meet other people of like minds just like i'm i'm meeting you and and you actually have an aliens fan club that you're involved in tell us a little bit about this and we'll put a link in our show notes of of how our listeners can find out more about this club yeah so basically it's a group of customers um this really started back in the UK with some individuals that got together and um, Aliens, of course, was filmed in the UK. Um, Harry Harris, which um, is one of my friends, has a lot of the props. A lot of the actors we're all friends with. Um, like I said, I talked about Tom, who did the special effects on the Aliens, um, Lance, um, Carrie, I mean, there's Jeanette. They're all just great. Rico, um, just talking with them and getting with them and what we do it's a group that we mainly focus on aliens but it's across the whole alien genre so if you're looking at the original movies or even if you like some of the other ones um, we can just all come together we can share um, our annual meetups normally at dragon con down in Atlanta over labor day weekend but we also have fan site we go to the the other cons and um, we go we set up displays and just try to get more people talking about it As always, we're going to close out by discussing one of the advertisements found in Starlog. This one says, put a monster around your neck. Holographically imprisoned in a disc of glass, Transdimensions presents The Minotaur and the Incredible Hulk, the first two in a series of ornamental delights. So what it is, it's, it's like a, a hologram laser picture of a minotaur and a hulk that you're supposed to wear around your neck and you remember this was a time period that seeing 3d pictures laser etchings of things was like a big deal it was like super new technology i love looking at things like this i mean what's great is they made it of the hulk which is (laughs) (laughs) it was the amazing price of 795 plus postage and handling that's not bad not at all O'Quinn Studios out of New York. So this is Carrie O'Quinn 
Making, who is the publisher of Starlog Magazine, actually ran some some trinkets through the mail as well. Yeah, that's great. Star, yeah, Starlog did have their own um, items for sale. You know, their own merchandising, which which was another good idea for them. I never see these at conventions. What these little um, these pendants, the yeah, necklaces. Yeah, I never see anybody have them, but I'd be curious to see it in real life. Yeah, they're probably rare, but you know, yeah, it would be neat to see them. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu Nanu.